0: Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship this morning, and as we review what we've learned here from the book of Ephesians, I pray that you would grant us incredible grace and mercy and help us to learn what it means to have a top-down type of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to introduce our sermon this morning by recounting to you a dream that I had last night. I'm not very much into giving you dreams, but I'm going to tell you about my dream that I dreamed last night. I dreamt that I was about to begin a series through the book of Romans. It was going to be a, uh, and I was starting it today. I was going to begin preaching through the book of Romans today, and it was one hour before the worship service was to begin, and I had not yet looked or studied even one minute of the book of Romans. Romans. But that was to be excused, for I was a superhero of great powers. So I got my desk out and pulled out the lamp and sat down. And wouldn't you know it, right when I began to study the Book of Romans, my arch villain sprung a trap on me. And I had to leave off my study of the Book of Romans to go save uh, the world. Um, And we decided, between me and the villains, to settle our differences. with the game of Ultimate Frisbee. And it was in the middle of our game of Ultimate Frisbee that I woke up uh, very happy not to be beginning a series in the Book of Romans today, but to be wrapping up a series on the Book of Ephesians. And so if you want to know what the dream life of Greg Baker is like, there you have it. Well, today we're going to be reviewing uh, our series, our series through the Book of Ephesians. Um, I have a few stats up here on the screen for you if you're curious and kind of into these things. We began our series on March 14th, uh, 2021. Uh, By my count, this is our 62nd sermon, and uh, if you include the sermons where we put Sunday School material into them, there would definitely be more. I would think probably up around the 70 mark, I would guess, but I didn't go back and count those. Um, And then, if if you're curious about news items that have occurred since we began our series, since we began this series, COVID vaccinations became a thing. There were no COVID vaccinations when we began, uh, but now there are. Uh, There were two Olympics held, one in Tokyo and one in Beijing. Uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine. Roe versus Wade was overturned. And Elon Musk bought Twitter, okay? (laughs) So uh, all of those things happened since we began Uh, our series in the book of Ephesians. So it feels like it's been quite a while, doesn't it? But uh, today we're going to wrap things up. Well, what I'd like to draw your attention to today, what what the great temptation will be, of course, is to re-preach the entire book of Ephesians, and that is not my purpose this morning. What I want us to do is capture the most important lessons that we've been learning since March 21st or March 14th 2021. Because in capturing that macro look at the book of Ephesians, your life should change. If you get hold of the central messages of the book of Ephesians, your life will never, ever be the same. And the life of Fellowship Bible Church will never, ever be the same. And so let's very quickly look at what these major points are that are, in fact, so life-changing. There are three concepts I'd like us to see today uh, that are constantly throughout the book of Ephesians, and there are these three concepts. Knowledge, wisdom, and comprehension. Knowing in Ephesians is a major, major theme. We're going to talk about what this idea is uh, as it As it relates moving forward here. But just so you know, the concept of knowing or having wisdom or having comprehension is absolutely central to this book. Now, many of you are, uh, many of you, this is your first church experience, your first Protestant church experience. For some of you, you grew up in different church environments. The concept of church is often thought of as moralistic. Do this, don't do that. Live this way, have these certain points of life. The book of Ephesians should forevermore tell you that that is a wrong way of looking at religion. Always has been, always will be. And what the Apostle Paul is after here is something inside, something we know, and that knowledge knowledge that he's talking about here in this book is absolutely transformational. You guys know this. You guys know how a little knowledge, a little knowledge, can change the entire direction of your life. And Paul here is giving us not just a little knowledge, but big knowledge. Let's turn to a couple examples where you can see the premium that Paul places on this knowledge. Let's turn over to chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Just so you can sort of see, this is at the end of a prayer that the Apostle Paul has been preaching, or been praying, rather. You can look at verse 15 and see the beginning of the prayer. He says, I do not cease giving thanks for you, verse 16. Now, if we go on up to verse 17, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is praying that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him so that we might have intimate, personal knowledge of hope that he's offering. Let's turn, if you'd like, to three, eighteen, and 19. I believe I'll also have it on the screen here for you, if you'd like to just look at the screen. It's, again, at the end of another prayer that the Apostle Paul's praying. He says that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all. The fullness of God. There are things that God wants you to know. There's things that Paul wants you to know. He wants you to know about the hope of your calling. He wants you to know what the love of Christ is and how deep and wide and massive that is. He wants you to know these grand themes. And he's praying that we would be filled with this spirit of wisdom and of knowledge. Now, before we move forward, I need to say something. Not everybody has this understanding. Not everybody knows what the love of God in Christ Jesus is like. Not everybody knows what the hope of our calling is. Some of us know it a lot a bit, some of us know it a little bit, and some of us know it none at all. God is coming to every person, and he's offering them salvation, the hope of our calling. He's saying, if you will believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, if you accept his sacrifice as your just penalty for what you've done, say, Lord, I deserve death, but Christ died my death for me. And I accept his sacrifice for me. I want that. I take that. If that's your perspective, you've started to know. But if you've looked at that offer, if you've looked at that offer and said, I don't want that yet, then you don't know. Then you can't know. And none of which I'm about to talk about applies to you. It applies to you as an offer. But it doesn't apply to you as something that you have. You have to want it. You have to ask God for it. And just like any gift that's being offered, we get this perfectly well in the Christmas season. If I were to slide a gift across the top of this little pulpit right here to you, it wouldn't be yours until you picked it up and took it and made it yours. And God is offering you salvation. He's saying, accept my free gift by faith. And if you pick it up and take it, you started to know something. You've started to know just how much Christ loves you. You've started to know what is the hope of your calling. You've started to know who you are in Christ Jesus, and you've started to know what you have. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants for everybody. He wants you to begin experiencing and knowing the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, All through the book of Ephesians, he's been telling us that he wants us to know who we are. And he's been telling us that he wants us to know what we have. So I want you to ask yourselves that question really quickly. Who am I and what do I have? If you've never asked Jesus to save you from your sins... This could all be yours. And if you've asked Jesus to save you from your sins, this is all of yours already. You are this person already. You have all this already. And Paul wants you to know that. And he wrote this epistle to teach you that. So let's look and see, for those of us who've been saved, who we are. Who are you? That's our next one. Paul's been telling us who we are. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to ask you, just just flip through these verses with me so that you can see who you are. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 5. You are adopted as sons. It says right here uh, that he predestined us for a, a, us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, you might remember that we learned back then that some people might say, well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a lady, and I don't want to be a son. I kind of like being a lady. I want to be a daughter. Well, I, look, I'm, I support that. But <laughs> Paul is tapping into a first-century uh, first secular metaphor, uh, Roman adoption. Uh, when Roman people in the first century adopted individuals uh, only sons would have legal rights to the father's property and things. So if he said, adopted you as sons and daughters, the people reading this would have been very confused because legally a daughter couldn't inherit the rights of her father. Okay. So what God is saying is, all of you, men, women, and children, all of you have been adopted who have asked Jesus to save you from your sins. You've been adopted as sons. Meaning, you have all the rights and privileges pertaining as a member of the family. You are legally brought into the family of God, and all that is God's is yours. All that is God's is yours. If you want to know what that is like, I would encourage you, after we get this winter storm, if it indeed comes to pass, get out on a ridgeline somewhere, Put your snowshoes on and hike a little bit through it. The snow will be up to about your waist. And all you can see is snow as far as you can see. And we're told in the Bible that God has heavenly storehouses filled with snow. And that's nothing for God, to have a little bit of that. And it's for him, it's the tiniest little bit, and For you, it's all you can see everywhere, stretching across the horizon. And that's a metaphor for how much God has. It's a visual. That can be yours as sons. All that is God's is yours. Number two, you are the body of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 23. In fact, he says this in a couple of different places, but here in verse 123, we're told that we are... Which is the body of Christ, that he gave him his head over all things, the church, which is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How many of you um, have been somewhere, maybe like at a baseball game or something, you paid for good seats, you're sitting right behind the catcher, the pitcher throws the ball, and the, the batter tips the ball, and the ball comes screaming back, and it hits the screen right in front of you, but... As the ball was coming at you, you went like this. You went, (laughs) wha! How many of you did that? Well, because you have a body, and God has given something inside of you to react when there's danger posed to your body. You protect what's yours, so you flinch. Well, Jesus says right here that when you have come into the body of Christ, you make up his body... And he is committed to protecting you just as much as he would protect himself. He is committed to beautifying you just as much as he would to beautifying himself. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, this wasn't always the case for you. You were dead. And if you remember reading chapter 2, verses 1 and following, this this sorry state that we were in. By the way, really quickly, if everybody looks up at the screen right here, I say right here, 2 one F-F, okay? I've got a question from this, so don't be shy if you were wondering this. How many of you have wondered why sometimes I put an F and sometimes I put two Fs? Anybody ever wonder that? Okay, several of you. Okay, one F means keep reading a little bit. Two Fs means keep reading a lot of it, okay? And so um, there's no Fs in your Bible, okay? So just one F means, so two Fs means keep reading a lot of it. So we were dead, we were dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to the, to, the, to the prince of the power of the air, but we're not that anymore. We are his workmanship, and we are fellow citizens with Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He says in chapter 3, verse 16, that we're not only fellow citizens of a city that has a street that's made of gold and whose foundation is made of all sorts of precious jewels and emeralds and so forth. You're not only fellow citizens of that city, but you're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you, oh, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, let's see here. Did I get that right? For this reason, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I must have written down the wrong reference there. I will look that up and change that, but trust me when I say that you are fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, I wrote that reference down incorrectly, I'm sorry. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, It says that we are light. So who are you in Christ Jesus? Who are you? What what does God want you to know about who you are? You're adopted. You're fellow citizens. You're fellow heirs. You're light. You're the body of Christ. You're saints. You've been utterly transformed by God's righteous declaration. And even though it's not totally true of you now, it is true of you in the courts of heaven. You've been made something, and your identity now is completely changed. And as a son, you have full and free access to the Father. You don't have to anymore come before God fainting and trembling. You don't have to come before him worried over what his purposes are for you. You can come to him as confidently as you go to your own father. Okay, Paul wants you to know who you are in Christ. There's something else Paul wants you to know. He wants you to know what you have. Okay, What does that mean that I have? Let's... Let's go to chapter 1, verse 7, okay? What do you have? Since you're a son, since you're a fellow heir, since you're a fellow citizen, what do you have? Chapter 1, verse 7, in him you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. You have redemption. You've been saved from your sins. You've been brought into his presence, redeemed, bought back from the sins that enslaved you. And instead of just bringing you up to even par, setting you free, he's actually lavished, lavished the riches of his grace on you. This isn't the lavishing of any regular person. Like, I like to be generous with my friends, but let's face it, Greg Baker has limited resources. And if I said, I'm going to lavish something on you, you'd probably be thinking, well, I guess that means I'm going to get the all beef hot dogs tonight. Okay? But if we'd mentioned him before, if, say, Elon Musk says he's going to lavish something on you, well, that's a little, that's a, That's a bird of a different feather now, isn't it? He's got the resources to really lavish. This is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the the king who possesses all, who created all. He's the savior who can turn water into wine, who can feed 5,000 from a tiny little lunch. What does it mean For the owner and possessor and creator and sustainer of all things to lavish. To where he would say it's lavished. That's what you have. It's yours right now. He's parceling it out to you. As much as you need right now. And one day you'll get it in great quantities. Let's see. Let's go down to verse chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, an inheritance. In our Bible reading, we're getting to the book of Revelation. And in the closing chapters of that book, we're told what the city is like that we'll inherit. We've been reading about it a little bit already in Ezekiel. It says that there's a river that is, I I did the math, it's, it's two and a half miles to the point that it's so deep you can't walk in it anymore and then who knows how far to the other side it is. It's a river that flows through the city. The city is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles tall. It's got layers of foundations that are all precious stones. It's got one street that's made of gold. Because the things that are so valuable to us here are common building materials in that city. And it's all yours. You are wealthy beyond your wildest imaginations if you have Christ, for you have inherited what he's inherited. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. For years, people went to temples, went to places to go find God. They went hither, tither, and yon to go try to find God. But when you ask Jesus to save you from your sins, the Spirit of God indwells you, and you become the temple of the living God. You have the Holy Spirit of God. This was illustrated so clearly. Say, last night, we're singing Christmas songs to people coming and going at the Valley Market. For those of us singing those songs, we sing things like, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. For how many of us, that has deep meaning, and you are so excited to see the Lord come to the earth and reclaim his own, and you're like, yes! Unsaved people? You have that because... You've been born again. You've got the Spirit living inside of you. And the Spirit says, yes, amen to that. To those who aren't born again, they hear those words and nothing happens. They like the tune. They've got the message on their phone. It just washes right over them. They don't hear it. They don't understand it. They don't see it. But you do because you've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. And once what once washed over you is a great mystery now has light and life. And meaning, it's remarkable. Verse 119, you have glorious riches and immeasurable greatness of power. You have immeasurably great power. You don't even know how much power you have. You have so much power at your disposal and Paul is wanting you to know, he wants, he's praying that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. People are powerless to conquer sins that beset them, and you have sin-conquering power. You have power to help people. You have power to preach the gospel to people, and Paul wants you to know not only this power, but the power that God is working all around you to preserve and protect you and to help you. He says that he has given us Christ over all things. He's given it to us. You have the, chapter 2, verse 7, you have the immeasurable riches of his grace. Chapter 2, verse 7, immeasurable. So then in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Chapter 4, verse 7, you have a gracious gift for service. If you are in the Lord, if you've asked Jesus to save you from your sins, he doesn't want you just to keep all this wealth and power and immeasurable grace to yourself. He's given you something. He's given you a gift for you to use to benefit God's people. He wants you to serve in his great and glorious kingdom and he's equipped you to do so. Paul wants you to know who you are, and he wants you to know what you have. Now, as I went down through the what you have section, what was the word that kept coming up over and again? Anybody? Immeasurable. 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 how would you mentally picture immeasurable? Imagine, for example, a great silo here in the valley, a great silo of grace and love and mercy, and you walk up to the base of the silo and you look up, and the silo just keeps going up up and up and up and up and completely out of view. And every time anybody comes up to it and opens it up, opens up the faucet, there's many of them on this silo, silo all around, blessings come pouring out. And it doesn't matter how often people tap it, it just keeps pouring out blessing. And it spills into the valley, it spills down through Utah, it floods into California and across Wyoming, up into Idaho, down into Arizona, and eventually just starts going across the whole world. It's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. And that's what you have. You have it, it's yours. It's yours. You have immeasurable inheritance, immeasurable power, immeasurable grace, and it's all yours if you are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wants you to take this knowledge of who you are, a fellow heir, and what you have, everything, and he wants you to let that knowledge transform you. Okay, He says, considering who you are and what you have, Paul expects transformation. Chapter 4, verse 25. He expects you, now that you know all this, to speak the truth in love. What happens if you've made a mistake and you're going to be a little embarrassed to share the truth? It doesn't matter. Tell the truth because of who you are and what you have. It doesn't, admitting a fault doesn't, you don't have to lie about it anymore. Because it doesn't affect who you are or what you have. He expects this treasure, chapter 4, verse 32, to allow you to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Forgiving people the wrongs they've committed, being tenderhearted toward one another, sympathetic, empathetic, kind, which means helpful. Imagine... Let us pretend for a moment that God gave you some money to go spend on someone for Christmas, your spouse say. You spent all the money. Do you think God is going to leave you broke so then you can't go buy presents for your kids? No, he's going to supply all the more. So you can... Take what God has given you and spend it all. Because you know God is going to supply with more to spend it all on somebody else and then spend it all on them. Christians ought to be, we we ought to be the most generous people with our sustenance and time and energy and strength, knowing that God will lavish more and more and you can be so kind and tender hearted. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he wants you to walk in love as Christ gave himself in love. By knowing the endless, immeasurable love of Christ Jesus, you can begin to pour that out on others in a loving and kind way. He expects us, chapter 5, verse 19, to let this knowledge of who we are and what we have affect how we talk to each other. The way we talk to each other ought to be so unique and strange. The small talk that we make with each other should probably be actually rare. The primary way we talk to each other as Christians is to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts, encouraging one another with the truths of who we are and what we have. Paul expects what we know to transform us. Chapter 5, verse 22, to live out our roles in a Christ-like way. There's Christ-like ways to be a husband and Christ-like ways to be a wife. There's Christ-like ways to be a child and a worker and a manager because of who we are and because of what we have. You can go give your all in your work because of what you are and because of what you have. You can be kind and patient and long-suffering with Employees that don't respect you and don't trust you and are trying to take from you, you can still be good to them. Because of who you are and what you have, you don't fear. You don't fear vulnerability in relationships. What if I submit myself to that person? I'm opening myself up for hurt, yes, but I'm a fellow heir, I'm a child of God. I have everything, therefore I don't have to fear what man can do to me. And God is asking me to submit to that person, and so I'll do it. Because I no longer fear. Given who I am and what I have, I don't have to. It just transforms everything. Chapter 6, verses 10 and following. This knowing transformation means that we fight for God's glory. We fight not angrily, certainly not physically. We fight spiritually. The devil is going to come with lies. The devil is going to breathe out threats. Tell us not to believe what we know we should believe. Push us back. But again... We're fellow heirs. We're adopted as sons. We're light. We're fellow citizens with Christ and the saints. We have an inheritance that can't be taken away or tarnished, and it's immeasurable. We've got a city awaiting us. So stand your ground. Don't value this life anyway. Be fearless. And stand your ground spiritually because nothing can be taken from you that really matters. It's what you have. It's who you are. And that should transform everything. Now, I walked through this entire thing to bring us to this point. In the next five minutes... are the most important things that Paul has to tell us from the book of Ephesians, okay? What Paul has been teaching us in the book of Ephesians is what I'm calling top-down faith. Top-down faith. Paul wants you to know Who you are from the top. Paul wants you to know what you have from the top. This is God's declaration about who you are and what you have. And when you know, top down, what you have and who you are, I can't say that I just can't say this more strongly. I can't say it more dogmatically or specifically. This is the the only way I know how to say it. When you really believe who you are and what you have, your life changes. Your life has cosmic importance, universal importance. Your life has forever importance. For the sake of your own soul, for the sake of all those around you, you suddenly have mission because everybody else around you needs this your children your coworkers your friends your family your spouse the people of fellowship bible church they need you we need you to start functioning with this top down attitude I am a child of God. I am adopted as a son, and I have everything, and there's nothing that man can't do to me. God is going to supply me no matter what. So without fear, without dread, without worry, without condemnation, without guilt, without shame, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to share this message. I'm going to be generous with all those around me. Because what I do for eternity matters. What I do for eternity matters. And the way that I affect the soul of a person close to me means so much more than I could ever imagine. And every decision I make, every moment of my life, everything suddenly takes on this giant purpose that the Lord has for us. And he never wants you to forget this. The tasks that we do day in and day out suddenly take on flavor and character and purpose. The trials that we go through suddenly have purpose and they're now opportunities because we start with the top and we work our way down. We don't make our theology from what happens and work up. We start at the top and work down. And it, that just frames everything. It frames everything. Okay, number two. Top-down faith means that every decision begins with who we are and what we have. Every decision begins with who we are and what we have. God's, You have an opportunity to move over here. Make that decision based on who you are and what you have. You're wondering what to do with this situation over here. Make it in light of who you are and what you have. You're considering a life-changing event. Don't make that decision out of guilt or fear or shame. You are in Christ Jesus. You have something. You have immeasurable grace lavished on you. Don't let fear dictate your life. Don't let guilt dictate your life or shame. You have the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have security. You have hope. Let those things determine your path. Let joy, the joy of the Lord in Christ Jesus, guide your decisions. Really, this is a a totally different way of looking at life. No longer am I going to let the what-ifs dictate to me, but what I, who I am and what I have now begins to make these decisions. Okay? And then last, top-down faith means that we fight sin with an all-new perspective. Perspective. We fight sin with an all-new perspective. I have a question. I have a question for you. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, okay? Um, raise your hand if you've ever struggled with what we call a besetting sin, a sin that you seem to always commit every time you're tempted to do it. Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, all of us. It's 100%, Okay. <laughs> All of us have a a weak spot, right? It's a weak spot. Some of those sins are pretty big and pretty embarrassing. We live in a lot of shame because of them. And I'm sure many of you have gotten far along fighting those sins with sheer willpower. I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to do it. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to try hard and I'm going to just muscle through this and beat it. I'm going to beat it. okay. And I'm sure many of you have had some success that way. I want you to know That's not your most effective fuel, okay? You can do it. It's kind of like the guy who decides to start um, burning, um, like, French fry oil in his car. Like, you can make your car do it, but it might not be the most efficient fuel that you can get, okay? I don't know. I'm not a fuel expert. If somebody, I'm sure, is going to come to me after and say, you know, peanut oil really works well. Um, Hey. I'm just trying to make a point that there's good fuels and bad fuels, okay? willpower is an inefficient bad fuel. However, when I was describing the silo that reaches into the heavens, whose blessings spill out everywhere and go and go and go and don't seem to diminish any, and the city that has a street of gold and foundations of rare stones and a 1,400-mile cube. When I was describing that, if you were meditating on that, how many of you were, were thinking, I wish he would get done meditating on that so I could go engage in my besetting sin? Anybody? No, it was, in fact, it was probably the furthest thing from your mind, wasn't it? That's the rocket fuel of sin-fighting power. Meditating on who you are and what you have floods out temptations to sin and can give you success in fighting sin in ways you have never, ever known before. Simply going through the rigor of meditating on who you are and what you have drives out those sins that beset us. So my advice to you, reread the book of Ephesians in one setting and remember who you are and what you have and it'll change you forever. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know you and give us grace to know who we are and know what we have. For those who don't yet know Christ as their Savior, I pray that they would consider the offer being made to them, and they would get into the book of Ephesians and see just what's there, and just how gracious and merciful and amazing you are. And I pray that by faith they would take those promises up and be forever changed by your mercy. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.